Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Kia ora koutou and welcome to our second episode. It's so exciting to be here. Happy New Year and Christmas. How are you doing, Chris? How was your Christmas and New Year? Mine was great, really quiet. Amazing, isn't it, how quickly they recede into the past. I enjoyed doing some reading for pleasure, which really only happens during the summer holidays for me. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I I think a lot of people probably stayed at home or stayed closer to home um, this Christmas, particularly in Auckland as well, just the social isolation of the last however many months. I have felt so totally socially inept and very kind of wooden in my interactions with people. So it's been like a gradual reintroduction back into society. So we we also stayed pretty close to home too. So this week we are chatting to Chris Tees and he's talking about his text Out Here, which is an anthology of takatapui and LGBTQIA plus writers from Aotearoa, uh, which was edited by Emma Barnes and he. And we also chatted to Chelsea, who is the founder of the Alphabet Book Club, which is a online bookstore and and movement which is dedicated to LGBTQIA plus texts, um, which is particularly focused at young adult writers. Uh, And we enjoyed having some beautiful, honest conversations with these incredible people. They were just so stimulating and joyous to chat to. How did you find that corridor, Chris? Wonderful. I couldn't think of a better way for us to begin the year than by speaking to these two. And it just gave me such inspiration. You know how this part of the year when you're just starting to get your mind focused back on the year to come and your teaching and it was wonderful just to have such stimulus to think, oh, this is what I could be doing in my classroom. This is the material I want to be using. But also in my case, they're both younger and I was really inspired by them. I, I, I was inspired by their kind most, of... Most people are younger than <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. increasingly. So true. <laughs> It's so shocking. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so them as people also, and that also was inspirational, just thinking about the young New Zealanders who are coming into the world and the way that they approach what they do. Yeah, and I think one of the final things that Chris was saying when we're saying, you know, um, we talked about what would you say to teachers who are thinking about bringing some of these texts in and might be feeling a little bit of paralysis around teaching texts that are either by LGBTQIA plus authors or have those themes in them. And I think he was saying, just just give it a crack. So it's a really wonderful time to bring, bring the rainbow into our practice, even if we don't identify as being LGBTQIA plus, to, to, to bring some more diversity um, into the texts that we're uh, exposing to young people, not only to give those kids who are coming to terms with their identity um, space and and characters and themes to which to identify, but just to continue to, to try new things and to diversify our practice. So for those teachers who might be feeling a bit nervous about where I might start, there's also some really good corridor in those conversations with Chris and Chelsea about where we might be able to begin that in our own teaching. Totally agree. Wonderful. Let's get on with it. In our podcast this week, we also have Chris Tees, who's volunteered to read some of his poetry and also discuss an anthology that he's been part of the creation of. And so instead of going into an endless introduction, I think, Chris, perhaps you could introduce yourself with a poem. Sure thing. 
Um, this is a weird poem to introduce myself with, but here we go. Uh, so this is called Like a Queen. I should be king. I should be torn from your stuffy pages. I should be monster. I should be undeterred by scars on shoulder blades. I should be tempted. I should be blackened, cum-stained and bleeding from love. I should be everything. I should be twenty-something with no heel. I should be wanton. I should be leaning over ledges with my fortune. I should be happy. I should be a bottle that never empties. I should be cruel. I should be crime scene bathed in unforgiving flash. I should be looking. I should be Maria on a hilltop, desperate for reception. I should be mirrored. I should be blanketed in folds of rolling silk. I should be child. I should be tender at their protests. I should be ready. I should be volume up on open roads. I should be paper. I should be leading you all into war. I should be visible. I should be on every street corner as is. I should be bold. I should be the reason you know my name. I should be spill. I should be more than enough. I should be queen. I should be your closing credits. Thank you so much. I'm going to be so English teachery about this and just say that the, there are two things that immediately strike me, two of which also I feel like thread through lots of the poetry of yours that I've read. One is the modal verb should, just this idea of I should, and the sense of searching for place that comes from the statement mm. or the repeated statement of I should. So I'm, I'm so eager to ask where I should as a refrain comes from. Yeah, I think especially for this poem um, and for this collection that it's from, He's So Mask, it, it's all about expectation and internal and external pressures of who you should be and, and who people think you should be. So for me, using the word should rather than could um, sort of sets up this, um, I guess, binary of what's possible and what's expected of you. And for me, writing this book and writing this poem is sort of a way of trying to unpick that expectation and trying to challenge that expectation while also presenting the possibilities of what someone can be in terms of the multiplicities of multiplicities of their identity in this poem this is what i see i see this as coherent because it could all be you or anyone but at the same time and this is the second thing about your poetry which i just find fantastic is that i'm so shocked by some of it <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'm shocked in the clutching pearls sense and i and I, I acknowledge and admit to that possibility but i find that i love it and i've found that it with your poetry that i've started to look for it i'm looking for the moment when I have been almost reassured into a sense of familiarity and then that's taken away from me. And I find that experience in reading of the poetry really thrilling. So uh, mm. in, a, in a list of things that you should, we have the appearance of Julie Andrews, but also the appearance of being blackened comes stained and bleeding from love. And those two things on the same page are shocking and wonderful. So is this intentional or am I just deciding that that's what's there? I think it is intentional and I don't like set out to shock people with my poetry. I do use poetry to challenge ideas and challenge perceptions. I did that a lot with my first book, which was about the murder of Joe Kim Yong in Hanning Street in Wellington in 1905. 
And with this book, it was more about challenging uh, what was expected of me as not only a poet, but as a person. So this book was uh, quite literally like a coming out on the page before this book. I hadn't really talked about or written about being gay. And one of the ways of dealing with that as a writer is to push yourself and open yourself up and allow yourself to be confronting because as queer people, sometimes that's not a privilege that we have because we are in the closet or we we are told not to present that side of ourselves. So being able to do that through writing was quite liberating and and a safe way for me to be able to test that side of myself out. It's really interesting that you call that safe. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is I think maybe because when you're writing and you're doing it in isolation and you're just, you know, by yourself at your desk um putting it out on the page you don't necessarily have to show anyone that you you don't have to write with um, publication or a reader in mind. Certainly when this book was being put together and as publication day came closer, I did get quite nervous and anxious about this being out in the world and, and having this side of myself so readily available and so public, which is terrifying. It is terrifying, isn't it? Especially when yep. who you are Absolutely. is in itself a provocation. Yeah. I have a, a question for you, Chris. Um, something like as you're reading that and you have such a beautiful voice to just listen to as well, and I know you've spoken your poetry a lot, so, so you'll be really practised in that area, um, but I found myself just kind of shutting down and engaging with your language, and there's this beautiful um, duality, I think, in in your syntactical structure and that in the first part you've got this I should and there's the repetition of that and that's language I'm familiar with and I know that the beginning of this poem begins well there's this idea of perception and managing perception and social media and all of these very familiar familiar tangible things but then the other part of these sentences and phrases sort of drop off into this beautiful ambiguous tumbling whirlwind and it's difficult to make sense of, and I mean this it, like as a compliment, it's, it's difficult to make sense of exactly what that might mean. And, and you find yourself revisiting the, that language over and over again to make sense, um, which allows you as a reader to, to kind of create your own meaning in a way. And, and, and that's a really beautiful thing to be listening to, to a poem and half of it is like, I know, I know what this language means and what some of the intentionality might be. But on the other hand, yep. what are the possibilities and meaning here? Is that something that was intentional also kind of balancing or juxtaposing very recognizable language structures with ideas and concepts that are more fluid? Yeah, I think I, I approach poetry and writing poetry almost like a a game or a challenge and and the idea is to um you know continuously one up the line that you've just written and and keep layering those possibilities and those those meanings or those diversions um as you are drafting a poem for for this poem yeah it's 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 something that i do quite a bit which is sort of setting that foundation of familiarity and and welcoming that reader in with something that isn't mm -hmm. too unexpected and then and then moving from there into a territory like what you've described, which is sort of meaning starts to fray mm. the edges and break down. And, you know, the point of poetry 
doesn't have to be meaning. It doesn't have to be, um, I will decipher this poem and work out what the poet intends. You know, for me, reading poetry is about enjoying the language and enjoying how words and images and sounds butt up against each other. These um, explosions of sound and meaning and, and experience. How do you imagine readers who are deeply engaging with your work articulate their experience of engaging with your work? It's always interesting to hear how people interpret your work and what they get out of it. Because truth be told, sometimes I don't know Mm. what I'm writing about myself. Like I might have an idea or a topic or something that I'm trying to put into words And that might be the start of something. That might be the seed of a poem. But often through the writing process and through the editing and revision process, that idea will just get corrupted or morph or change into something really Mm. unexpected. And that's what's really exciting for me as a writer, that I don't always end up with what I set out to do. It's all that accidental discovery by Mm. changing a verb or, or, you know, dropping a word or two and, and just letting the poem be what it wants to be. And I think I think there's a proper tension in that for us mm. as English teachers, because essentially we end up with a poem. Mm. And one of the questions that we're often asking is what's intended? And that's what we've been asking you as well, Chris, is what did you intend that? I almost feel like we're asking it <laughs> like children are asking if we're right mm. or not. And I think that's the education system in operation around mm. literature. It's just interesting to look at ways in. Like you've also published it Mm -hmm. on the page as couplets that oppose each other, two left justified followed by two right justified, and that just exemplifies visually the same tussle that the words contain, and there's something really elegant about that, I think, which doesn't come across when you read it, of course. I'm interested in your thoughts about that idea that this whole dissection exercise might occur around this poem. You've produced it for your own reasons as an artist. You've chosen to publish it, so you know it will have a readership, but then... (laughs) after this podcast, it might have a series of classes around it as well. It might have a group of young people instructed to make sense of it and being given starting points to do that. How does that feel? I am always bemused mm-hmm. when I hear that my poems have been used in classes, either at secondary schools or at university. I you know, I chose to re- publish this. I know there's going to be a readership um, once it's out there in the world, but whatever people you know, pull from it however they interpret it, it's it's out of my hands. And um, I, I find that quite exciting and exhilarating that a poem will have multiple lives. You know, it, it will extend beyond to just what's on the page and what's in my head or, you know, what, what it came from, um, mm. that people will, will take it and, and run with it and, and find their own meaning and, and value out of it. I think what you've said there about kind of running with it, you know, finding meaning and, and then running with it is so important. And to be honest, in the secondary space, that's where our best excellences, that's where our highest quality grades come from, is from that deep personal engagement. And if you're thinking of that excellence criteria of perception and insight and originality and all of those things that those stunning um, responses to text have, it's it's not necessarily parroting what the teacher has told you that the author's purpose was. It's it's through 
believing in your own ideas and working your ass off to make sense of that through the language that you have available to you. I just really total call what you're saying about, you know, finding your your own way with a text and just absolutely running with that. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And I think that teaches we can get into a bit of a trap, teaching things on repeat and having an idea that we believe our students should be writing about and not having the confidence to actually allow students to develop their own deep interpretation and then encouraging that, not having the answers, but supporting students find the answers. Everyone brings their own life experience and you know their own tastes to reading poetry or, or any sort of literature, and that's always going to influence how you respond to it personally. And people should be allowed to bring that to to their interpretations or to their responses to a text without feeling like it's right or it's wrong. May we hear another one? Absolutely. This one is called uh, Selfie with landscape. What you know about me, what I've revealed, what I've left at the door of my favourite wolf to force eye contact the next time we pass in the street. These stories all had emergency exits, just like the rules adhered to by poets and liars that we've never thought to record for consistency's sake. Sometimes I look at my face in the mirror And all I see is a bruised blanket of dusk settling on an increasingly unfamiliar terrain. I'm a man who lets trouble back into his life, even though I have raised every highway to and from that particular story. I'm both a short breath and an age expanding into minutes and days to be recycled as fact by other writers in 100 years. Will they give weight to my failed desires? Tell them... I am a no-vessel for their designs. Sticky nights forged into a vigil. Here's a true story. I cut my wolf out of my night scenes with a dull knife. He did not protest, and therein lies the pathos. Here's a status update. I cut my nails and now I can't scratch at the dust caking over my eyes. I'll take a picture and show the world what I'm too scared to keep private. I just want them to like what I'm not. Your voice is just so wonderful to listen to. Like I look forward to listening to this back and just being just being in a dark room and just hearing that language and just letting those metaphors and that imagery just sort of tumble around each other. Again with that with those questions like, of what could this be or who is this or where do I fit in the system? Why does this affect me in the way that it does? You know, where is that feeling in my gut coming from? I also felt the really strong recognition with your description of uh, performing actions in order for another to make eye contact next time on the street. And I feel like that's actually quite a queer experience, <laughs> this kind of desire to be acknowledged by people that you've had an impact on. And that's the thing, right? Like, like people posting thirst traps on, on Insta- Instagram and, and whatnot after they've broken up with someone just to sort of say, hey, I'm still here and I'm feeling fine. <laughs> we could leave this poem as a artifact for the listeners mm. to spend time with themselves and perhaps they can also communicate with each other if they want about thoughts they have and communicate to us about ways they think this might be useful in a classroom because we've got a second whole idea that we want to discuss with you, Chris, because you've been part of the production of a anthology of LGBTQIA plus literature. So the title of the anthology is Out Here, an anthology of Takatapoi and LGBTQIA plus writers from Aotearoa. For us, it was really important to reflect that 
This is a collection of writers from Aotearoa, um, including Māori writers um, and those who identify as takatapoi. And uh, we wanted to find a way to encapsulate all of the different types of sexual and gender identities. Using the the um, acronym LGBTQIA+, seemed to be the right way to go. And we have written an introduction um, where we talk about why we didn't use queer in the title because of its history, its use as a pejorative term, and how some people still bristle at it being used in certain contexts, even though it's still widely used in academic writing, um, and a lot of people have reclaimed the word as well for the rainbow community. And I think the um, sensitivity to the terminology reflects how the anthology has been assembled, because it doesn't just present contemporary voices. It's got material over time as well as across different identities. How did you go about making your decisions? Emma Barnes um, is my co-editor and they are an amazing poet um, and has been uh, involved in um, publishing as well. So I knew that they would be a fantastic person to work with on this collection. So we identified um, a list of writers who we knew would fit um, the criteria for this collection. And we were looking at writing from 1985 onwards. We knew that um, there was writing from before that period, but we were also quite cognizant of the fact that there would have been writers who who may have been queer but hadn't actually confirmed it. And we didn't want to accidentally out anyone or accidentally include someone who wasn't necessarily queer or didn't identify as queer. So picking 1985 was a way of ensuring that we could still potentially confirm um, a writer's gender or sexual identity and perhaps even reach out to people um, in person to make sure that they were comfortable being included in such an anthology. 1985 was also, as many people would know, um, you know, a turning point in terms of uh, homosexual law reform in New Zealand. So I remember it well. Yep. So at that, you know, we we use that as sort of like um, a line in the sand um, because so much has happened since then, and so much writing has occurred um, by queer writers in New Zealand um, in, in in the years since that we felt was representative of what's what's happened in terms of how queer issues have been talked about in um, the media and in the public consciousness in, in Aotearoa. So we put out a call for submission because we wanted to try and reach as many people as possible and, and gather as many voices as possible. And the response was really overwhelming. And it was really exciting to, to receive work from people um, who had never submitted writing to um, an anthology or a publication before, as well as people um, who were quite established but um, had never been out you know, in, in this way before. Um, and, you know, going through the, the list of names on the back of the book, um, people might be surprised to see certain names on it. It must have been quite an intimidating process to be in the chair of the pair of selectors. What kind of criteria did you develop? It had to be good quality writing. And it had to be writing that interested us and challenged us as not only editors, but also readers. And it was stuff that, for me personally, was was what I had never seen before in terms of um, writing in um, Aotearoa, but also writing that challenged perceptions of what queer writing should and can be. Mm. So in our open submission um, call out, you know, we said we're looking for writing from queer writers, but it doesn't have to be coming out stories. It doesn't have to be tragedy and trauma. We want to open this 
world up to people who want to write about whatever they want to write about and and not let their sexual identity influence or impact on on what it is that they produce mm. so we we searched you know high and low for for writing that basically presented queer life as 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 quote unquote normal or or no big deal um you know that that broke from that narrative that being queer is a tragedy and and full of pain and you know we don't deny that for a lot of people that is true and there is writing in this anthology that reflects that and and speaks to those experiences but they are placed alongside um love stories and 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 sci-fi stories and 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 things that people might not expect from queer writers with the work that is coming through in this text that might not have um really obvious queer themes is that narrative still an important discussion to be having in a classroom setting around, you know, it, it happens to be that this author is is queer and it's a part of this anthology and this is an important anthology because, or is a part of that normalisation just teaching that text or just exposing students to this text and it just happens to be by a queer author? Does that question make sense? We, we talk about in the introduction how... Uh, some queer writers like Witi Himaru have never been taught um, as queer writers or that aspect of his his life is completely glazed over or ignored. Um, even though he has written some pretty explicitly queer texts. Um, and so for us, that was sort of like making the invisible visible again and, and, and not, well, yeah, trying to undo some of that, um, that erasure of, of the of the past. There's a way to teach writing by queer writers that not only acknowledges that they are queer, but acknowledges that they don't have to just write about queer writing. And I think writers of any sort of minority group, like um, Asian writers, don't necessarily want to be um, seen as just Asian writers who only write about Asian stories and narratives. They can write about whatever they want, but I think it's important that we still acknowledge who they are as a person because that does sort of contribute to what they are bringing to their literature and 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 putting on the page. I think the other thing to pay attention to as teachers is we are definitely there to work with literature and to follow the norms of literary analysis, but we're there for other reasons too. And if there's an opportunity mm. for us to alert our class to the fact that this piece of work that we are loving is is by a queer author and that there Matters. might be components of it that yeah. could be reflective of that, then that would be an opportunity I'd never want to miss. I'd want to do that so that the students in the class had that information. I think that when we choose not to say that, that communicates a lot. So even if it's not relevant to the literary study, I think it's relevant to our students to discuss it. Anything you want to cover or like sort of say to it, to the uh, English teacher fraternity about the anthology? Give it a go. <laughs> mm. I am, you know, I, I was at high school um, in the mid to late nineties and there was no way in my mind that I would come across something like this collection um and i just think about what a difference it would have made if i had had something like this or introduced to me you know by a teacher um at that age i think a, a collection like this re is is so needed at, at a time um 
such as now when that is changing so much and when attitudes are changing so much. And that is what drove us to create the book and to to to, to find these voices that might speak to them and that they might be able to identify and associate themselves with. What was your greatest discovery through the process of selecting for the book? We had Gus Goldsack, who had never submitted writing to um, a publication before. And when we read his work, I was just blown away and thought, why isn't your writing everywhere? We have Cadence Chung, who is who was a high school student when she submitted work um, to the anthology. And you know she's gone from strength to strength and has been published in so many journals now and has a chatbot coming out with We Are Babies Press later this year. And you know she uh, has just really changed how I see writing by young people. It's just so mature and interested in the world. Do you have any um, queer literary heroes of your own? One of the first queer poets that I really um, found myself attracted to was D.A. Powell. And that was the first time I'd read poetry that not only spoke of the queer experience, but incorporated uh, so many pop culture references. And for me, that was sort of like the first time I was like, oh, it's okay to reference disco songs and, and actresses and actors and movies in and, and this way while still sort of saying something meaningful. I, I had sort of been steered away from that because, you know, people don't, people, people thought it was, it was frivolous and um, would age um, badly. But, you know, in a way, putting those pop culture references actually situates a piece of work or situates a poem and, and helps, you know, draw people in um, who, who might not necessarily be interested in poetry um, because it is, it is something so specific and familiar. Uh, your poem performance part two is like that. I love the fact that it's about stuff you kind of have to know about to know about. It feels great. Yep. Yep. That's what's so great about, especially this new generation of poets that really do sort of pull from popular culture and contemporary events and, and use sort of internet slang and internet language because it does, it does feel familiar and contemporary and, and it's relatable to, um, to, pe- to people who, who are searching for that voice in, in, in writing and in literature. Every book room needs to have this anthology. Teachers need access to this material on an everyday basis. They should expect it to be there. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a, a privilege to be able to talk with you about your works. And thank you for reading and sharing. It's been awesome. Welcome, Chelsea, from the Alphabet Book Club. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us on the NZATE podcast. And um, we've got so many questions for you, but I thought it would be really nice to start with, how did you get to where you are today in the setup of this little business of yours? My wife, Teresa, and I, we were working overseas for a giant circus company. And when the pandemic hit, it just sort of folded overnight. So coming home meant that we really got to think about what we wanted to do in the and, and what we wanted to do with our lives and where we wanted to lead it. I basically went, what are two things that I'm very passionate about? One of them is reading, read like a maniac, I always have. <laughs> and the other thing is rainbow activism. Christmas of 2020, we decided we were only going to get each other books. And I decided that my reading goal for 2021 was that I only wanted to read books by um, queer or BIPOC authors. So she 
found me this amazing array of books. And one of them in particular is called The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. And for me, it was just one of those books that um, changed me. It really, it really hit me. And so I started recommending it to everybody. Everybody should read this book. We were staying at, we were traveling the country in a van. So we were staying at campsites and I was recommending it to strangers. I have, all of my family have been recommended this book. And the one that really, really resonated with it was my my best friend, Elaine. And she tried to find it in New Zealand to buy. She couldn't. So she was like, great, okay, I'll go to the library. Went to the library and at that point she joined the waitlist. She was 198th in the waitlist to borrow this book. And I checked it a couple of weeks ago and there are over 200 people on the waitlist for for this book. And it's worth it. The book is amazing. Tell us about the book. What what is it that resonated with you? Why was it such a significant moment? So for me, this book, it's all about being othered by society and but it's not about being gay the the main character is gay but it's mentioned in the same way that it's, that it's mentioned that he's got brown hair he's just a queer person that exists in the world and this is his story uh but the whole story is about magic so it's a it's magic is an allegory for queerness and how people with magic are shunned by society so it's all about being othered and finding your family and finding those that understand who you are so it's a really gorgeous story. And so you had a lot of trouble accessing the actual texts or others did when you recommended it. We were lamenting about the about what we were missing out on and we decided to do something about it. That's how we came up with the book club. We were having, we were having a conversation when we were launching the business where we were going to put what our favourite books were on our website and we all picked The House in the Australian Sea. I was like, we can't all have the same book. We can't all have the same book. <laughs> While you were talking about that book, I actually bought it. Oh, well. <laughs> oh I <laughs> so see. I'm looking forward to that arriving. Yeah, <laughs> I just clicked yeah in. that's me. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about why a LGBTQIA plus specific bookstore. And, and I see that the club is obviously focusing a lot on books for young people. We did our research. We researched a lot and we found what was available in New Zealand and we saw what was missing. Our primary stock is children through young adults. And our primary reason for that is the, the youth suicide rate in New Zealand. I said that I'm a, a queer activism is one of my passions and I've lost too many friends, too many friends who didn't think that they had a place in, in the world. And I just go, if we can provide some positive representation for kids in particular to feel like they're not alone, they're not strange, they're not weird, they're, there's no reason for them to be mistreated. It's just a way that I would like to make a difference. Um, so all of the books that we stock, I read. I read through every single one because I want to make sure that it's positive representation or honest representation because it's it's fashionable to, to make a queer book at the moment. Um, there's a big move for it. And so it's often people will include a queer love story and not really and not handle it correctly um mm. or everyone dies at the end everybody's romance lasts for 30 seconds and then everyone dies happens so often uh in all me- across all media there's a big trope of bury your gaze and that seems to happen a lot if you even if you look at new zealand media mm. shortland street every gay character on there eventually ends up dying 
what you're doing is so incredibly important and it must just wake you up in the morning with such a deep sense of purpose. I guess this is a question for both of you guys. What would it have meant to you as as young readers, as, as teenage readers, opening a text and seeing characters like yourself and having your experiences kind of validated and celebrated in written text? Chris, you start this one. All right. So first of all, I, I probably need to identify that I am gay and uh, cisgender, and I definitely had a lot of trouble as a teenager. I was a teenager in the 80s. Um, I think one of the stories that I tell often to kind of illustrate what it was like then is not only was it the time of homosexual law reform where uh, homosexuality was being decriminalized and that heightened a lot of people's opinion about that at the mm-hmm. time and I was living in quite a conservative area of New Zealand so as far as I knew there was no one who supported that movement but also the visibility of gay people was completely absent I, I knew no gay people had no image of a gay person didn't really understand what homosexuality was as a concept And I think the story that kind of illustrates that best is when we studied The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde at school, his homosexuality was erased from that learning. I never actually Mm. had that explained to me. I never had any access to that understanding. And the whole subtext of The Importance of Being Earnest is about homosexuality, Mm. but I didn't have access to that subtext because it wasn't taught to me. So even texts where there was coded representation I didn't even have access to that, let alone any direct representation. And the and the the challenges psychologically and emotionally to not seeing yourself represented in, in the world around you are severe. And I can mm. speak at great length about that. So I I think it's worth celebrating that New Zealand's come a long way in the last thirty five years since then. But at the same time, there's still real problems with the way that a lot of people who don't fit the mainstream norms in terms of gender and sexuality are represented. And I think, Chelsea, you were talking about something that I'm also really familiar with, which is that kind of notion of the plight of the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, etc. character in a text. Mm. They may be present now, but often they're either present because of their sexuality and gender, which is problematic, or their plight in the text is so horrifying that they're really a vehicle for titillation or for trauma rather than people who are living full three-dimensional lives, which is the thing we really need to see as much of. And I think the other thing, Chelsea, is that even though we live in a society where we have laws to protect us in relation to gender, sexuality, identities, there's still a lot of prejudice and there's a real lack of representation in schools in particular. There's a lack of representation in texts that we study in schools and there's a lack of people in schools who are comfortable and open about their sexuality. And so mm. there's definitely work to do. One of the reasons, that's why we're talking to you, Chelsea, mm. I think your endeavour and putting together a collection of texts that are positive representations for the rainbow community and doing a little bit of previewing of that and thinking critically about it is super important and a great step forward and it'll be an amazing resource for us as teachers because we need to build our confidence in this. I agree with you with what you're saying about not being represented in books and being a side character, being the fun gay one on the outside or having books about trauma and I feel like there there is a place for books about coming out Absolutely. The trauma of coming out is something that 
every queer kid has to go through. I feel like there is so much scope now to have books about queer people just existing and living their mm. lives and going on adventures. And and it's not something to, fo- their queerness isn't something to focus on, which I think is why The House in the Cerulean Sea sort of mm. resonated with me so much because it was the first queer book that I read that it wasn't about him being queer. But in the same breath, it absolutely was about the queer experience. I was born in 87, so I I grew up with the homosexual law reform in place. Um, But I grew up in rural Taranaki. I always knew that there was something different with me. I never would have come out at school. I put myself in a lot of really problematic situations. I tried to find love from from men who didn't know what that was or how to respect other people. It it wasn't good. I I could have easily been a statistic. Mm. I... um, really grappled with who I was and and where I fit and what was wrong with me um, because I also had no role models. I had no one around that was out. I had no one at school that was out. 2000, and, 2000 to 2005, I was at high school. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because people think that 2000 to 2005, much more enlightened times, things will be different. But the reality for a lot of us is that things didn't change at all. Mm. And that isolation that you experience is quite a profound thing. I think I think it can be useful for us, especially when we're talking to an audience that contains a lot of teachers, is to remember that for queer community, frequently your family doesn't share your minority And so you don't grow up in a family who also have that experience. Mm -hmm. And that means that going home isn't necessarily a refuge in the way that it might be for other minorities. Mm -hmm. And so what that generally means is that school can be and often is the best place to be because it's an environment where you can be acknowledged for who you are and supported and there's a, a set of protocols and expectations of the way schools practice that should make schools inclusive places. But we also know that they're actually not. And one of the main reasons they're not is a lack of visibility, which is where literature comes in, isn't it? Especially because that's accessible to all English teachers. We can all make a lot of uh, progress with our students by representing ourselves and our gender and our sexuality in really positive ways, whatever the gender and sexuality we have is. But also we can provide them with access to stories through literature. Do you have a, a key book from your early years that might have had an impact on you? I didn't see myself represented in books until I was late 20s. Can you remember that first book that you opened and saw your experience? It was um, Fun Home oh, by Alison Beckham. So good. So good. Yeah. And I went, oh, okay, great. Like there are books yeah. out there. I, I exist. I'm here. And I think that that book's really important because not only is is it about growing up and feeling different, but it's also about shining light on people that wouldn't necessarily be seen as the Hollywood mm. love interest. Yeah, high school wasn't an inclusive place for me. I think the reason I survived was my wonderful drama teacher. She took all, all of the kids that, that needed family and created one. If you could achieve some of your goals with the Alphabet Book Club, what sort of things would you like to see happening, particularly in relation to English teaching in schools? It was chatting with one of my eldest godchildren. He's 12 and he's at intermediate at the moment. 
his class did a big thing in June last year for Pride Month. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Tell me about mm. it. And, and he was telling me about how they they remade the flags and they learned about all of the different colors and whatever they meant. And then he was telling me about the books that they were reading in class. And one of the books that they read is a book that I find deeply problematic, which is My Brother's Name is Jessica by John Boyne. He wrote The Boy in Striped Pajamas. And I think that a lot of teachers who might not necessarily be familiar with the queer community will see the name and go, oh, good author. And they'll see that there's rainbows splashed all over the cover of this book and go, oh, pride book, done. I find this book problematic because it tells the a trans story from a cisgendered character's point of view. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on the cisgender character's feelings about his sibling transitioning. It's actually the same problem as the boy in striped pyjamas. Absolutely. So the narrative is it's still um, perpetuating the hegemony of heteronormativity. Yeah, and it's and it's giving permission mm. for people to feel their feelings about somebody else's transition out loud and to their face. Yeah. And I go, this is the wrong book to be yeah. teaching in a class. I was like, there are so many beautiful books about the trans experience and what it means and what it feels and describing things like gender dysphoria and all the emotions and, and politics and socializing and things that go along with being trans. So my big thing is that I don't like gatekeeping. Mm. I, I don't believe that you have to be a gay man to write a book about gay men. For me, it's about honest representation. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that book is honest to the author, who is a cisgender gay man. And I feel like he was trying to do something for the the trans community and the queer community and just absolutely failed, Mm -hmm. just biffed it. I think possibly the one of the ways that we could frame it is it's a cisgendered book about cisgendered experience. The challenge we might need to issue is um, we, do we need another cisgendered perspective? And so if we're trying to produce uh, texts or introduce texts that have a wider range of perspectives, then that wouldn't be useful in doing that. I think one of the things that inhibits the presentation of books like this in mainstream school is people's anxiety about getting it wrong. So it's useful to hear Mm. your point about not wanting to be a gatekeeper. And I think as the queer community, it's important sometimes that we communicate our forgiving (laughs) attitudes about people's attempts to do this. You know, this teacher that you're talking about is making enormous steps in the right direction and obviously would be, I imagine, really receptive to the conversation we're having right now. I think the important thing is that we have these conversations and and if we become more fluent in the reading and, and, and teaching of these texts, then we're able to engage in that conversation more readily. Absolutely. And I've reached out to this teacher since just to see whether they would be interested in and talking about books that could be better suited for next year, um, which is why the the idea of building teacher resources to go along with our books, that's how that was born. Because I was like, if you're a cisgender, heterosexual teacher who doesn't really have any links to the queer community, how, how would you know? Mm. How, how would you, how do you access that information and know that you're doing right by the the kids in your class. No, that's right. I'm in my 50s and 
teachers who are in my age group went to school when all of this was verboten. It could not be in the curriculum and it couldn't be discussed and it certainly wasn't ever encouraged or advocated for. So positive representations of homosexuality, let alone range of different gender identities, are just not part of their own educational experience. And whether we like it or not, teachers do reproduce their own educational experiences in the classroom quite a lot. And so they don't have a lot to work with when it comes to their own background. And that means that we do need to support it. I love the idea of resources for teachers. Do you have any books that are currently in your catalogue that you think every school should have? Yes. There is a book called Tin Tomato and the Subterranean Heartsick Blues, which is a book by H.S. Valley. It has a Takatapui main character. And I just go, that doesn't exist anywhere else. Like, that's what you need is like, it's a young adult story. It's about wizarding school that's set under Fox Glacier. There's comments in the first chapter about Kmart and Marmite and Pix Peanut Mm. Butter. Like, it's so Kiwi and it's so accessible. And I just think that the representation is really important. I can certainly say that from my own experience, the only representation of gay people that I ever got access to was through books. And one of the things that when I go into school libraries and I see these sort of gay displays, I struggle a little bit because I had to do that all in secret. Like, in fact, I didn't even Mm. get the books out of the library. My brother got them out for me because I couldn't be seen within 100 metres proximity of a gay book. And he would then toss Mm. them into my room. We wouldn't even talk about it. (laughs) I'd read them and then he'd return them. One of the things that literature is, is really private and that people can actually access stories and and representations that they may feel really uncomfortable with within themselves. And if, as you say, the representations of those people are positive, then it can make a huge difference. Literature plays a significant, powerful, primary role for a lot of LGBTQIA people, more than even other groups in society who are prejudiced against. So I can't speak more highly of you for setting this up for us because it's making these materials accessible. I mean, I grew up with... Uh, a, a lot more media, than, uh, like representation in media than what you probably would have. But my rights were also discussed mm. as a matter of public opinion. People could have an opinion over whether or not mm. I should be able to get married. You asked before what we want to achieve with the store, and that's that's one of the big things. So we called the Alphabet Book Club, and what we've started doing with 2022 is that we have a book subscription service. So each month a book arrives with a a different form of representation each month and at the end of the month we do a podcast it's just trying to help those that are in isolated places like I was in Mm. Taranaki like you were Chris and going like here's a community that that we can we can grow together we have an option with our packaging whether you have out and proud packaging or quiet pride packaging so the Out and Proud is oh, covered yes. in rainbows. Yeah, I saw that when I bought it. And the Quiet Pride yeah. is just plain packaging because we want to protect everybody's home life. Not everybody mm. is safe at home. Like Chris was saying before, home isn't always a refuge. It's the same with naming. We are quite happy to put a dead name on the outside of the package and a true name inside the package. Have you had any pushback or challenges to your project? We receive a fair amount of like snide comments and things on Facebook, but we've received some some wicked hate mail. One mm. person's hate mail managed to talk about how 
we were spreading AIDS, we were attacking children, oh, that gosh. we were dividing people when the pandemic's already doing that and we should be bringing people together. And our co-papa with our business is to respond with kindness because you never know what someone's going through and you also never know who's going to read that and see what's responded with. Is that, um, and this perhaps is an ignorant question, but it just, it seems like that would require so much when you have such vitriol arriving in your inbox or Facebook Messenger or whatever, and to, to respond with aroha, how challenging is that? Is it counterintuitive? It is sometimes. But when we came up with the store and, and what our focus was going to be and why our focus was, we decided that we would also come up with a policy to protect us and to protect mm. the, the people that are a part of our community. And so we decided the easiest way to deal with with negativity was to respond in kindness. I think that advice is quite important mm. for teachers as well. If you're starting along this path and you're wanting to introduce more diverse and representative material into your classroom, then I can tell you from experience that you definitely need to be prepared. And the ways to prepare as teachers are firstly personally prepare. It's about thinking about how you will act should this happen, just the, the same kind of um, safety action planning that we do for our students and just having a series of steps that you know you'll take un under those circumstances is a good starting point when you find yourself under attack. But the other thing I think is really important is to align with your allies in advance instead of waiting for the problems to come. And so for teachers, it's a good idea to talk with others about what you're doing in the classroom and when I say others, I mean colleagues in particular, members of the senior staff who often are the first people who will get the criticisms that come your way and just make sure that they understand what you're doing and that, they, and that you've all agreed as you have within your book club on what kind of response you're going to develop or whether a response is required. Because, of course, the people who contact you, sometimes it doesn't warrant a response. And they've actually won just by eliciting one. I absolutely applaud the respond with kindness policy, but depending on your role and the nature of the attack, sometimes a, a non-response is the most appropriate response. These are realities, but I think these realities also make people hesitant to take these steps as teaching. It's much safer to fall back on the material that everybody's taught for so long, that everyone's comfortable with, that no one questions. And so knowing also that there are other people out there doing it helps, as you say, building community. So I love the idea of your book club because if there are teachers who are talking about how they're working with this material with their students and how that's gone and what kind of reaction they got from families and that sort of thing. Have you ever had that, Philly, a situation where people have – uh, directly criticised your practice or the material you've taught? Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, um, how do you respond to it? Well, uh, I can remember one time I was, I was, um, a few years ago I was uh, teaching the film A Single Man with Colin Firth. The aesthetic of that, as much as anything else, it just it's so beautiful. Just Very Tom Ford, oh, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so the fluffy jumper. Just, it, anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful film and I really enjoyed teaching it for, you know, themes far beyond a fluffy jumper. But I did talk to my head of department about that. Um, I was teaching in a single-sex girls' school and I just said, just heads up, by the way, I'm, I'm doing this film. I saw no issue with it. Of course there were going to be, I guess, gay themes and – I was 
excited to sort of explore that with my class and look at 1950s and the Cuban Missile Crisis and how all of these kind of things intersected. And she said to me, she's like, you know, you know, they have an agenda, though, Philippa. And it just, it just cut me off at the knees because I was like, sorry, sorry, are you, are you talking about the gay agenda? Like, and it was just before a staff meeting, like just before the, you know, ding, 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 welcome to week seven or whatever. And I just didn't know what to do. It was almost comical. And then just other colleagues just saying like, gosh, you do, you choose weird texts, don't you, Philly? What's interesting is that the impact that I feel like I'm having at the moment is with parents. I've had parents of kids reach Mm. out to me to be like, hey, my kid's going through this thing and I don't know how to support them. The first one that happened was in my first couple of days of being open and it was a dad whose kid was hospitalized after a suicide attempt. And his email was just heartbreaking when he was saying that He's like, I'm just a Kiwi bloke. I made jokes about it. I've obviously done it wrong. I just want to know how I can help and how I can be better. Mm. And I was like, great. Here are so many resources that are available through organizations like Rainbow Youth and Inside Out and Gender Minorities Aotearoa. I certainly have heard, being an older fella, I've heard from students about the impact of the sort of representation you're talking about, Philly, in the classes over the years Mm. and obviously they eventually um, identify their sexuality and gender and then they come back and they say I remember when I was in year 12 English and we were having this conversation and you said this sentence (laughs) and and I'm thinking my goodness I imagine if every sentence I said was kind of kept for future reference but the interesting thing is that I, I think we have to acknowledge that for a lot of students uh, except perhaps the the exception of those students in your class in um, the school you were teaching at the time, they can go through the whole 13 years of school and not encounter in literature mm. or in any of the materials on any of their learning yeah. any representation of people who are in the queer community. And so they don't see anything of themselves until they exit from school. Mm. And um, that's still the case. Yeah. And it's, it's it's reflected in the fact that when you choose a text that centres on the experience of a gay man, which is really in, in a lot of senses the most conventional mm. form of this kind of representation, it's considered to be radical by your colleagues. Yeah. We were talking a, a little bit earlier about that paralysis around teaching texts that have themes or characters that are beyond your lived experience and not not gatekeeping, as you were saying, Chelsea. Where would you advise that teachers start if they're wanting to be more inclusive and bring these texts into their practice so that, that their um, kids can identify with? How do you begin to teach a text if you're, um, if you're nervous around misrepresenting some of those experiences for me that's that's why i'm i'm working on these teaching resources to help that moment of of being like what how do i do i know that i'm doing this correctly do am i saying the right thing is that critical lens important as well i'm thinking more perhaps in the senior years of high school like and also within resourcing within a department. So say at your um, nephew's school, there's a class set of that text now, which for a lot of schools is, is, a, is an enormous purchase. But I wonder if we're reading these texts 
through that lens in the same way that if you were reading a text like To Kill a Mockingbird now, hopefully, um, or The Help, you know, that, oh, these these texts that uh, that are that are really being questioned, providing you're teaching them through that lens of critical race theory and you're developing more awareness, then then surely that can that could be a good thing. Is there still a place for texts like my brother's name is Jessica? I might interject there mm. and just say I think that that's a tertiary experience. Yeah, right. Like, okay. I don't mean necessary tertiary education. Mm. I mean once you've encountered positive representations and healthy representations and 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 valid representations, then you can start looking at the problematic representations. Right. If that makes sense, yeah. like yeah. otherwise you are kind of centering something that doesn't deserve to be centered on the on the subject of you know gender sexuality mm, mm. i think perhaps if the text had merits for other reasons but it had a problematic character then sure. that could be argued yeah. to be valid yeah but when a text is so clearly stating its intention as being about that issue yeah. and then does such a bad job of representing it it's probably not a good choice for any book room to be honest yeah and i can see how you're saying when you get up to year 13 and thinking particularly within the 3.8 critical text standard yes. it might be some of those textual components that you are able to look at through that a critical yes. lens but the whole text itself that is that is uh, more appropriate within that tertiary space and perhaps there might be some smaller texts and the the discourse has evolved to a point that you could do that you could look at a, a smaller whole text within a secondary space to a point yeah. But with a particular group of students yet. where you'd got there. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. for sure. Mm. And I also think there's plenty of heteronormative material for us to deal with. Mm. So teaching heteronormativity as a concept is a really healthy thing to do, but not necessarily introducing yet another heteronormative text in order to illustrate sure. that. I think if you mm. wanted to look at look at a text, like if, if you wanted to look at a text under the guise of is this problematic, you could go to any Stuff or New Zealand Herald article that is about anything to do with being queer at the moment and you could use that. My whole altruistic goal is to help keep kids alive. I, Any way that I can do that, I'm here for it. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy talking with you, Chelsea.